Greetings, listeners. You're joining us for a remote conversation we're having with an Oxford professor of mathematics, Marcus de Sotoy. Now, I spoke to Marcus on another podcast that I produce for University of Adelaide called AI Agents, and we spoke about his last book, The Creativity Code, Art and Innovation in the Age of AI. But when I spoke to Marcus, he was about to publish a new book, which I was very interested to read because he was extremely exciting to talk to, and his new book was called Better Thinking, The Art of the Shortcut. Now, I'm not someone who's particularly strong with mathematics, but I found this book extremely enjoyable to read, and I found myself obsessed with calling almost everything a shortcut, because it's actually an extremely useful way to describe thinking, describe solutions to problems. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation we have with Marcus de Sotoy. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961-2020. to Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim, and thoroughly enjoying wearing my new headset. Yes, we're talking remote because we have a very special guest. Thank you for joining the Blind Insights podcast, Marcus. Uh, Great to be on with you. Marcus, I was fascinated by your book, The Art of the Shortcut. I myself was quite talented at mathematics in preschool, or not preschool, but uh, junior school is what we call it in Australia. It would great if you were good at preschool, Tim. Yeah. (laughs) We would have called you an early early superstar. That would have been great. The first thing he ever said was uh, a billion and one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I started to kind of uh, flounder with the subject around high school and it was basically when things started to become extremely formulaic and I couldn't work out my own shortcuts let's say to um, you know addition and multiplication and all those things this book however has inspired me in a way that I wish my teachers had during high school because I think I would have found it extremely interesting I probably would have stuck with it it would have inspired me in the same way that finding my own ways of thinking about stuff did Yeah, it's very interesting you say that because in a way I was completely the opposite. I wasn't really good before going up to high school because I didn't really enjoy numeracy because I think up to that point it's kind of arithmetic and you're kind of playing around with the numbers and and a lot of people kind of enjoy that, the satisfaction of doing calculations. But for me, I've got a terrible memory. So things like multiplication tables just didn't stick and so somehow I slipped down the class because of that. And weirdly, it was only when I came to uh, secondary school or high school that I started to see the kind of more abstract pattern searching new way of thinking about sort of structures that I fell in love with the subject. And I kind of left, I realized, oh, actually, I I don't have to be very good at multiplication tables because maths is something very different. But I think you're absolutely right. I was very lucky to have a teacher who kind of took us outside of the sort of formal curriculum and told us stories about ways of thinking, the stories behind how how we came up with these new ideas. Um, And, you know, I I start the book actually with a story that he told us, um, which I think represents the ultimate shortcuts and kind of made me realize, oh oh gosh, this is what mathematics is about. It's It's about avoiding hard work. It's about, you could be faced with a really difficult, long, challenging problem, which is really boring and take you ages. But if you think cleverly, think better as the other title part of the book title is you can actually avoid doing the hard work so maybe i can indulge uh listeners with this story because i think it kind of illustrates the power of mathematics 
as a shortcut. Yeah, absolutely. I assume you're talking about Gauss. Yes, I'm going to go for Gauss, who is kind of like my mathematical hero and is kind of, well, he's a companion throughout this book because uh, he's kind of like the master of the art of the shortcut. So people began to realize this guy was a genius at kind of junior school, actually, because uh, the story that my teacher told me was the maths teacher in the class in the school um, challenged the class with the task of adding up the numbers from one to a hundred. Now, of course, all the other kids set off on their journey, starting at one plus two plus three. And I think the teacher thought he was going to get, uh, you know, a little bit of sleep at the back of the class because he realized this was going to take them forever to get all the way to 100. You know, really boring, hard work, probably make a lot of mistakes. But even before uh, he'd finished asking the question, the young Gauss who was sitting there, eight, nine years old, had written down a number on his little chalkboard and put it down in front of the teacher. The teacher thought, well, who's this impudent little kid in this class who's just writing down random numbers? And, and then looked at the number and, and said, oh, my gosh, it's, it's the correct answer. Uh, and he said, how did you get that so quickly? Did you cheat or something? And he said, no, not a cheat, actually a shortcut. Um, because I realized that there's a clever way to do this calculation. You see, all my fellow uh, uh, um, schoolmates are starting at the beginning of the journey and just working through to the end. But I thought, why not combine the beginning and the end of the journey? So you add one plus 100, and it gives you 101. Uh, if you add two plus 99, it also gives you 101. Three plus 98, 101. So Gauss had realized if you pair the numbers up from the beginning and the end, you have 50 pairs of numbers all adding up to 101. So the calculation is easy. It's 5,050. Um, so this for me, when my teacher told me this story, I thought, oh my gosh, that's you know, all these kids doing all this hard, boring work. If you think cleverly about it, you can get the answer really quickly. And my teacher said, yeah, that's that's the point of mathematics. That's what we've been doing for 2000 years is coming up with all of these smart, clever ways of thinking about problems that are, uh, avoid doing hard work. And that is what I'm going to share with you over the next five years of your journey through school. You know, we are giving you the the shortcut to all the 2000 years of shortcuts. And in a way, that's what my book is for readers. It's the shortcut to all the amazing shortcuts we've come up with. And that's the amazing thing about it, Marcus. Like if that had been said to all of us by our maths teachers, that maths isn't a slog, you're doing a bit of a slog at the beginning to get good at something that will give you shortcuts for the rest of time, it would have been so much more persuasive. You know, how your teacher ended up that remarkable is a great potential story in itself. Yes, and that's why I dedicated the book to him and all maths teachers. Actually, the book is dedicated um, to them all. And I, I think, uh, I mean, getting a little bit political, my fear is that kind of teachers are a little bit boxed in by government and curriculum, that uh, government thinks that maths is about utility. Yeah, certainly it's a very powerful tool in making and doing things. But actually, I think it's much more than that. It's about uh, creating an analytic way of thinking, which you can apply to, to many different parts of your life, not just the obviously mathematical. So I think that I, I just wish that the curriculum or government or education would kind of free the maths teachers up to sort of celebrate all of the maths that sort of is, is off curriculum, but actually illustrates just these wonderful ways of thinking. So I guess my book is a little bit like a manifesto for all of the things that I think we should have on the curriculum and the ways we should engage students um, uh, in, into the subject. 
Yeah, it was a wonderful thing for me when Tim said he would like to have you on and, you know, could I go away and listen to the book? Because, you know, the course that Tim did with me at University of Adelaide was a course on complex problem solving. Oh, wonderful. Being trained as a philosopher, my background is, you know, again, uh, you know, I think the last time I did maths reasonably well was age maybe 15, where I was still doing all the maths in physics and in double maths in my head because being blind I couldn't see what was on the board and I couldn't see to write anything down so I was just processing quadratic equations in my head well it's really interesting yeah because in a way I quite enjoy that kind of unphysicalized uh, aspect of mathematics Mm. that as a research mathematician I I sort of enjoy leaving the physical world and escaping into this world of the mind, which, yeah, certainly I I do need a kind of pen and paper. I mean, my my Mm. kind of canvas is a yellow notepad. And um, Mm. um, I I think the challenge of of doing that without being able to see, but, you know, I I consider, I I engage in my mathematics in a very linguistic way. I think Mm. mathematicians kind of divide into two. Yeah. Yeah, sort of algebra and things like that. I, I, I think mathematicians divide into two camps, actually. Those who view the world very visually. So someone like Roger Penrose, my colleague in Oxford, who worked with um, Hawking and works on the mathematics of black holes and things. He loves diagrams, pictures. He's a beautiful mm. artist, and that's his way into the subject. But for me, I always, you know, actually my research is in uh, the world of symmetry, which you might think, oh, isn't that very visual? But no, what I did was to take a language developed by um, Every Scalwar uh, in the beginning of the 19th century. Wonderful romantic mathematician, died in a duel at the age of 20 over love and politics, but already it created this um, linguistic way of engaging with symmetry. And, and that, for me, freed me of the visuals and allows me to use that language to, to conjure up symmetries that you'll never see because they lived in very high dimensional spaces. Um, mm. And that's actually one of the shortcuts in the book is the power of language to move you from an area which may be very difficult and hard to to navigate and manipulate. But if you create a, a different language for it, so going from sort of visual symmetry of like the tiles in the Alum- Alhambra or, or dice, for example, and then moving it to the linguistic, that, that is an amazing shortcut because suddenly it opened up access to to things you could never see so it's interesting i think that you know you're, you're saying that actually you were still able to manipulate the things in your mind because i think it is a it's a it's a subject of the mind yeah i hit the point where to go any further they're going david you're going to have to write answers down to get marks to get through exams i'm like well oh. that that's the end of me doing formal maths by kiddies yeah i, I mean math- well that's the the, the bane <laughs> of the examination system to try and yeah. test us uh, uh, and validates that we're good at a subject. I mean, again, that's another of my bugbears. We we need yeah. to kind of um, uh, find multiple ways to assess our students, not not just through competitive exam. You know, why why mm. should it matter if it takes you thirty minutes to solve a problem uh, uh, compared to two hours if if you get to the solution? But exams test that, and they test putting things on the page and explaining things. And, mm. you know, every Scalwar, this young mathematician, was never appreciated in his time because he couldn't express his ideas on the page. And people found that very frustrating. Um, eventually, people decoded his way of thinking and realized, oh, my gosh, this guy was a genius. And he left us this wonderful new language to understand symmetry. Wow. So how long did it take to decode his own language for what he was doing. Were people yeah, looking at it I for a say, century? You know, he, or? 
No, no, no. Probably a couple of decades. Um, okay. He left a manuscript on the table before he went out to this fateful duel as he died in, because um, he knew there was something important here and he wanted to leave it to uh, his uh, friends to try and uh, uh, express what was there. Um, and so it probably took a couple of decades for people to start to unravel and, and say, oh my gosh, this is a completely new way of, of looking at the world. And I would say it was only the end. So he, he died in the kind of uh, 1830s and probably it took to the end of the 19th century for us to fully realize the amazing things he'd done. Mm. See, one of the things I taught Tim and every class of complex problem solving I ever taught at uni was all about Bayes' theorem. Not to do the oh, maths yes. that goes with Bayes' theorem, but to get used to the idea that every time you've got new data, consider whether you need to revise your hypothesis. So again, taking something that could have been represented mathematically, but going, if I can set this philosophical idea in everyone's head, they're still going to be so much better thinkers than they'll be without it. Yes. And I think you see mathematics is deeply philosophical at heart. Mm. And that's an aspect we sort of don't pick up on enough because, you know, those who may be drawn to the humanities at school, you know, feel, oh, that's that science. Uh, and uh, that's not my area. I mean, we're still tragically, I think, in a kind of two cultures mode in education. But I think if you brought out the kind of philosophical aspect, the idea, of, for example, that, you know, the idea of infinity and that there are many different sorts of infinity, that's a deeply philosophical way of thinking yet it's also a mathematical way because well how what do you mean there are what there are some infinities bigger than others that sounds crazy how are you going to uh, convince me of that uh, and, and so i think those kind of aspects that are more philosophical in nature would be really wonderful to have as part of our education system and i guess i kind of encountered that at school and realized wow I, for me i was always somebody who loved the arts and the humanities. I do a lot of music and theater in my life still, but also I, I really was drawn to this kind of power of science to, to reveal the secrets of the universe, this powerful um, way of, of t telling us where we come from, where we're going to go next. So I wanted something that kind of bridged the two. And for me, mathematics was that bridge that it was, um, yeah, the language of nature, yet it was deeply creative and allowed the imagination to conjure up in these worlds of the mind things that could never exist physically. That that was like the, the, the really deep appeal of this subject. Yeah, I think you really capture the combination of those two things when you start writing about you know, what is the square root of minus one and the world yeah. that opened up. Because to someone who's got the open mind to just follow the question and not have a no, 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 we can't go there. We can't have a negative that comes out of a negative. It's not possible. Well, actually, yeah. no. It's more fun to just you know, go with the flow. Absolutely. Uh, it's very interesting because this book actually bounced off my previous book, which uh, was all about the power of artificial intelligence to be creative. It's called The Creativity Code. And, you know, one of the strands in that book is, um, you know, I believe mathematics is a very creative subject. So could AI kind of match the creative side of being a mathematician. Certainly AI w might be able to, you know, uh, deep, deeply into the equations and find things, or, or certainly it's very good at pattern searching, finding links in data. But what about that challenge, for example, of uh, breaking the system and, and imagining this new number, you know, the imaginary number, the square root of minus one, that's really breaking out of the box. That's a very creative uh, leap into the unknown. So I think that's a really interesting challenge. Would an AI which has been trained perhaps in mathematics before complex imaginary numbers that 
every number when you square it is positive. How would it ever make that breakthrough that we made? It took us several centuries. I mean, people were suggesting this number and, and, and people, other people were going, well, there isn't a number, you know, it's, it's unsolvable. And then gradually people went, oh, yeah, but yeah, it'd be really great if we had it. Why don't we try a mathematics with this new number and see where it takes us? And, you know, it, it unleashed so many things. I mean, early years of radar, you would not, it became a shortcut for being able to do the calculations that radar involved um, quick enough to be able to land planes. I mean, if you don't use the square root of minus one, the planes have crashed, landed um, before the uh, air traffic controller knows where the plane is. Um, and also quantum physics. I mean, it turns out, although this thing sounds very, surreal and imaginary number actually quantum physics that's how we have to understand the world with this this new sort of numbers so it's kind of uh, an, an amazing shortcut to access bits of the engineering and and fundamental physics that we wouldn't have had without this number do you think it's actually arithmetic that slows people down from taking the leap to imaginary numbers because everything you get taught in that early phase where you want to impress the teacher and you want to sing along with the rest of your class while you're doing your times tables in as much as it's very useful so that you can work out change from your coffee and your baguette it also crushes your mind yeah it does and i think i often compare this to learning a musical instrument where um you know you have to do your scales and arpeggios um in order to facilitate being able to play an instrument very um, at speed and, and not having to think about every note. Um, however, you know, the, the real music is not scales and arpeggios. That's just the ingredients. And, and so we expose our kids to Beethoven, Mozart, um, Stravinsky, and they realize, oh, that's what I'm aiming for. And I sort of feel we're missing out that part of a mathematical education. So the kids learn to do their multiplication tables. They're, they're very fast with it. It's like their scales and arpeggios. And, Okay, but what do you do with that? Um, and I think that that's that next step is what's missing. And we don't, you know, music. We're lucky to have ears which give us quick access to that sound world and the emotional world. And yeah, it's harder in maths to develop the kind of mathematical ears to really hear what's going on. But I think that's sort of what I'm trying to do in my books. I'm not expecting everyone to understand how these things are put together, but I'm I'm just trying to play a little bit of our Mozart, our Beethoven's that. People sense, oh, wow, there are really big stories out there, big ideas. Uh, and, and as you said, you know, if I'd been shown those, I would have dedicated myself to the, the you know, more complex scales in arpeggios that we need to learn, which is a kind of bread and butter of, of teaching at school. So, so I, I think, you know, my books are always about paying back that maths teacher for having it, given me this key to my secret garden that I spend my life in and all the other uh, people, you know, I, I he recommended books that have been written to me by people of his generation that inspired me. So, so I, I think it's really important for uh, each generation of mathematicians to inspire the next ones and not just the next mathematicians, but to inspire, inspire society about how fundamental and, and beautiful and exciting this subject is. Is that the real meta shortcut? Is it, is it that if you were exposed to something that you can obsess about, that compels you to look into this sub or look into any subject further uh, that you, you kind of can achieve greatness at a much earlier stage. Uh, Galois was the, uh, uh, the reference you brought up earlier. I'm not sure if I said that correctly. He was like 20, right? When he, yeah. uh, when he died. 
Yeah. So it's a, you know, he'd already had these, you know, like amazing big ideas. And so do you think that there's like an element that the, the true shortcut and that maybe even the crux of your book is that it's <laughs> potentially going to uh, draw people into thinking bigger earlier? Yeah, Tim, I really like that idea. And um, maybe I should nick that for the next edition, because I, I think that um, that it, that is in a way the ultimate shortcut, because um, you will dedicate yourself to subject and spend the time you can't avoid hard work often in learning the shortcuts i think david you you, you said that um that you know it requires some effort to um, learn these skills but once you've got them they then become uh, just amazing new tools to be able to do things much quicker so i think uh, and it actually relates to an important distinction that i try to make in the book which is uh, i'm not trying to you know i was a lazy teenager i didn't like doing work but actually as an adult, I, I really love my work. I love spending my time doing my subject. And I, I made this distinction, which Aristotle made, between uh, two different sorts of work. I mean, David, you maybe correct me if I got this wrong as a philosopher, but the you know, idea of praxis and proesis, you know, work which you love doing for the sake of doing the work and, and the work which is just about attaining a goal. So for me, these shortcuts are meant to be a powerful way of getting to your goal, if that's all you're interested in. But if you actually just love the work you're doing, then you don't want a shortcut. And, that, and that's why, you know, for example, I, I interviewed a lot of other practitioners during the course of the book, not just mathematicians. And one of them, I talked to Robert McFarlane, who's a, a walker, a climber. And he said, well, you know, I could take a shortcut to the top of the mountain. I could take a helicopter, just drop me off. But that completely defeats the object. I want to spend time battling nature and taking several days to get the top of the mountain. So that's important to me. Uh, these shortcuts are meant to be getting you to the kind of frontiers of the thing that you want to spend your time doing. That That's really important. This isn't about just avoiding any work. It's about getting you to the work that you want to, to spend your time doing. Yeah, I was thinking about the example you know, of the mountain climber when you were writing about it, that that is definitely a world in which what you do is learn to not waste time and energy and not risk unnecessary injury. Yeah. So there's all yes, these and, additional know, skills on the side that then prime you to do a much better job on the big day on the big mountain. Yeah. And he tells me about this incredible shortcut that he did end up using where uh, he was uh, on the top of the mountain. They'd been very, uh, they'd been slowed down in their progress. And, uh, oh, I, I learned this beautiful new word, which I didn't know before. Um, he said, we were about to be benighted which uh, means that the night is coming in and you will be swallowed up by the night um, and you don't want to be benighted on the top of a mountain. And so he said, we needed to find a fast way down. And he said, well, we came up with this shortcut. There was snow on the mountain and we created this mini avalanche and we just slid down the avalanche on the mountain and got to the bottom of the mountain in very fast speed, still all intact. And he said, yeah, sometimes, you know, although actually all my Climbing and walking is about enjoying my time in nature, not shortcutting it in, in a kind of trivial, easy way. Sometimes these shortcuts are are important. So as, as you say, you, you need these skills to be able to efficiently use your energy to, to get to your, your goal. It's an interesting thing I was thinking yeah, as I was listening to the book, and it's a consequence of having done so much work with the Australian Army. But there's always a problem in militaries and particularly after World War II, it becomes dangerously obvious. And that is that the transition from being a tactical leader 
to a strategic leader doesn't work anymore. So if we That's look, all the, all the major powers that did brilliantly in World War II have done a terrible job at the strategic level ever since. Well, you see, that's very interesting because I think this is going to be a, a challenge in some sense, which society is going to face in the next few decades, because there you've got an example where people are having to kind of retrain in a way, rethink mm. the way they do. And my feeling is that artificial intelligence revolution is, uh, you know, it's a new industrial revolution. People use that term very often. But I think this one is very different from like the Victorian revolution in the sense that the, the Industrial Revolution in Victorian time affected one generation to the next. But this revolution is, is changing society so quickly and will do. You know, people that, that have known how to do one job are going to have to suddenly retrain and think in a different way in, in the kind of 10 years time when suddenly their job is being done by artificial intelligence. And so, again, this is one of the things that I think education needs to address. So we need to be teaching kids not facts and figures and, and um, content. We have to be teaching kids uh, how to learn, how to be fleet of foot, because my feeling is that as we go forward, we're continually going to have to learn. I, I think that in the past, we sort of thought we came fully formed out of university, you know, by our 20s, that's who we are. And we're going to be using these skills till the end of our employment age. But actually, no, we're going to have to be retrained. So, you know, if you're good at one thing in the army, for example, uh, tactical thinking, but then you move to a, a, a different stage of life, a different stage of society where you're having to think tactically. That's about having the skills to 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 retrain, to rethink, to re-address uh, how you're going to solve your problems. And, and I think that's why mathematics is a very powerful kind of toolkit to give you these strategies to when the problem changes, I still have um, you know, this suite of uh, kind of shortcuts, which is what I try and present in the book, which you go, okay, well, I was using this one last time, but maybe now I need, you know, I'm now in a very data rich area. So I have to exploit the skills, the, the shortcuts, which allow me to spot the patterns in data, because this is the world I live in. I didn't have all mm. that data before. Now I do. So how do I use these new skills? And yeah, th this is really what my complex problem solving course was all about. Here's a bag of heuristics. Try one. If it doesn't deliver yeah. a better answer, try another one. You know, this is the problem if you do anything for too long. And I think what happens to so many people with maths and what happens to military officers, you do arithmetic or be a tactical officer too long. And by the time you're exposed to advanced maths or being strategic, brain goes, I'm uncomfortable. And instead of being open to it, you hit cognitive dissonance. So the real trick of modern education, it seems to me, is going to be to lay multiple things out in front of people at the same time and make them inured to cognitive dissonance, which is going to yeah. be a monumental job. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, you know, we uh, often celebrate India and China uh, as being sort of mathematical powerhouse in education that, you know, no kid in India would admit to being bad at maths. It's somehow, it's like saying you're illiterate. However, what I have seen is that um, although the Indian mathematical education system is, you know, way ahead of ours in what they teach, but actually, um, what the kids are very good at is if they're given a problem, they've been taught how to solve it. So they're very good at calculus because they apply um, yeah. the rules that they have learned and they push those rules to the limit. But what they're not good at is when they're then shown a problem which is slightly outside of the, 
the kind of set of problems they've seen in the past mm. because they're so obsessed with applying the techniques that they've learnt to the problem. Um, they actually they hit that kind of uh, the thing you mentioned that uh, mm. cognitive dissonance. They that they they suddenly but I I I've never seen this problem before. I don't mm. know what to do. It's uh, and sometimes that's what you, you know the maybe your more European style of thinking that actually because we're not so set in following rules that sometimes we're better equipped that when the kind of whole setting changes, we've got this skill set to sort of um, a, attack the, the new sort of problem. So so I, I think you're absolutely right. It's about giving people um, ways of thinking, not uh, just rules to follow. We yeah. are not machines uh, and we need to um, kind of indulge that, uh, that we, that, and I think, you know, it's, as you say, it's having that suite of problems and if one thing doesn't work, then you come at it with another. And I would say, you know, this is, again, uh, I seem to be knocking education in, in our conversation, but uh, let me do another one, which is um, I think at secondary school, one of the big problems is that we compartmentalize education, uh, the subjects. So, you know, you go from the maths class to the history class to the music class, the physics class. And you don't realize these are all interconnected because there's no sort of dialogue between the two. And, you know, I feel, again, that would help with uh, cognitive dissonance, that if you sort of blended all of these different ways of thinking, not just across mathematics, but, you know, to uh, music, the creativity of language uh, and allowed us to sort of interweave these different ways of thinking. I think that would uh, that's what a true education is. And I think we sort of miss that chance to to reveal the mathematics in music uh, and help people who you know, give them new skills in, in composition or uh, in, in understanding the piece of music they're writing. I mean, this weekend I was just at a music festival in Ireland and we were exploring a piece by Yanis Sinakis, a Greek uh, composer who was celebrating his 100th anniversary of his birth. And he composed this piece, which is all about compose using the symmetries of a cube. And he, he uses different symmetries to do kind of variations throughout the piece. And I was working with a cellist who never learned this piece before. And we created this animation, which explores how this piece was put together. And, and she said, look, without this kind of mathematical uh, way of viewing the piece, uh, I would have been lost in this piece. I, you know, I would have learned it. I would have gone from, you know, little uh, section to section. But you've made sense of the whole structure for me. And I can learn this in a completely you know, newly informed way, which m- helps me to totally uh embody the piece that in a way that I never would if you hadn't given me that shortcut to see how the the piece is put together so you know that that's I think we need to use this just all of these things across subjects not just get you know say I'm a mathematician I'm a composer I'm a, an artist I'm a physicist and they're all so interconnected yeah, we sort of seem to be here now in the world of someone like say Anders Ericsson with his idea of peak performance, where he looked at the three groups of violinists in Germany in the 1980s, and they'd all done the 10,000 hours. So as usual, you know, Gladwell stole one idea and didn't get the point of the book. Yes, exactly. But it's the quality of the mental representation. So what we're really talking about here is making sure that people can have the biggest, most layered, complex mental representations of whatever it is they're interested in that they can look at one part of the representation or layer multiple parts until they get the kind of understanding they want to take their next step 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's interesting you mentioned the 10,000 hours because one of the other practitioners that I interviewed to talk about shortcuts was a cellist, uh, Natalie Klein. And, you know, I, I did think, surely, you know, are there shortcuts to becoming an international cellist? I, I couldn't believe it. And she sort of confirmed, yeah, well, yeah, I, I have to put in my eight hours a day. I, there's very, it's very hard to shortcut that. Um, mm. And she made an interesting point because, you know, she believes that in a way she's physically changing her body to be able mm. to, you know, mus- the muscles in her hand to be able to form, uh, do, do those runs in pieces of music. I mean, that requires just a muscle memory, which, you know, it takes time and practice and those 10,000 hours to um, to build up. And and that became a theme that I actually recognized throughout the book. You know, whenever you're actually having to do a physical change in the body, often that is quite hard to shortcut. But she said there are shortcuts. Of course, you know, learning my scales and arpeggios in a way is a shortcut because, and she compared it actually to reading. You know, if you had to to read a book where you looked at every single letter in order to read a sentence, that would take you ages. But but we learn shortcuts of words and we, we just see a word and not the letters. And so for her, that's the power of seeing a particular arpeggio or, or a scale run that she sees that on a page and she's already got a shortcut because she, she knows that that's in her kind of repertoire of things. And she can say that word it, it, through with her cello and she doesn't have to read it note by note. So I think absolutely you said there, 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 it's this blended approach. There are shortcuts, but there are also just uh, things you, you can't avoid. Um, Another of the ones I was really interested in was psychology. My my wife's a psychologist, you see, and sometimes you can't avoid the fact that you are changing brain structure in order to be able to help somebody through the traumas of their their youth, for example. And that's that can take a long time of therapy, you know, years and years of therapy. And one of the psychologists I talked to in, in the book is uh, Susie Orbach, who was actually Princess Diana's psychologist. Um, and she says, you know, this is like having to unlearn a language. It's difficult enough to learn French, but imagine if you spoke French and you had to unlearn it. Um, you That is a real brain change. Mm. Yet even in psychology, you know, there are some difficulties that people have that actually are just basically, you know, a little bad bit of code in their algorithmic thinking. And, and something like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, it is a shortcut. It's a way of saying, look, if we can help you to sit above your thought process and, and make you observe that at this point, you always uh, go through this thought process and it takes you down into depression. What if you intervene at this point and take yourself in a different direction? Cognitive behavioral therapy is an amazing shortcut to kind of like rewrote, rewrite the code where actually it's just a small kind of... Uh, bug in the in your thought process that we can correct in quite a short space of time and so that's was very powerful here in britain you know cbt has become a very much part of the health treatment and has saved many billions of pounds because of people losing time at work because of this little bug in their way of thinking it's a very interesting idea like we did a couple of episodes on william glasser who's a very famous but obscure american psychiatrist and Glass was very interesting that he would say to clients, you know, if I can't help you in six months or you're not ready for me to help you in six months, then we're better off stopping because in his 55, 60-year career, there was almost no one he couldn't help in that period of time. Interesting. I, th- I think exactly. You can start to see the change, mm. uh, but if somebody is resistant and, and those neural pathways are not being reformed, mm. then six months probably is a, 
a good cutoff to say, well, you know, there's too much of a barrier here and I can't mm. get through it. And there's a very interesting book called The First 20 Hours. And I can't remember who the author is, but he's tapping into something that fits in so well with what we're talking about today is you can get to the, the beginning of competence enough to go, is this something I want to continue with in 20 hours? And he does it with a musical instrument. Like in 20 hours, he learns to play a nursery rhyme and to play the chords underneath it. I think guitar or banjo, one or the other from memory. And his point is, if you actually look at how humans learn, it's once we want to be excellent that we slow down dramatically. Yeah. In the early phase I, I think, I think anything, it goes back to that we've got a point Tim mentioned that first yeah. of all you've got to fall in love with the subject. But yep. I think you mentioned the word confidence, and I think that's you know, I think I spend like fifty percent of my time with my PhD students in maths as a psychologist, <laughs> not a mathematician, that mm. I can see their confidence go because they're you know, they're going into the unknown, it's a problem nobody's been able to solve, they just lose faith in their ability to crack this problem. And I have to build up that confidence again. Um, mm. And I think, you know, it almost comes with a little bit of arrogance. And I think that's what has always helped me. I've always had this kind of arrogant belief that if somebody can understand this thing, when I was learning a new subject that somebody had already kind of written the textbook for, look, somebody's written in a textbook, they've understood it. If their brain can do it, my brain should be able to do it. It's totally logical. Why should I not be able to do it? And I think I always had that confidence that I should be able to follow the path that somebody's laid out to be able to do that myself. And and I think it's interesting, yeah, 20 hours, I think probably maybe enough to help you to fall in love with the subject because you show them great things and also to make you believe that you could do it. I mean, you know, I, I started learning the cello seven years ago. And as an adult, you want, you know, as a kid learning, I learned trumpet as a kid. And I and I think um, you, you're prepared to spend the hours at school and I didn't expect to learn, be able to play it tomorrow. But I think as an adult, you want everything fast. And um and I had to kind of face the challenge of, of spending the time to learn this new instrument. But my teacher, I said, look, my goal is I'd love to play those Bach suites um, for cello because they're just so sublime and beautiful. And she was so clever. She said, OK, let's start on one. She said, but I, haven't, I, I don't even know how to play a note. He said, and she said, no, no, if that's what you want to play, we're going to start. You're going to go really slowly. But we're going And she took one of the slightly simpler minuets from the first suite Um and I, I, that was so brilliant. You know, I mean, you said a nursery rhyme, and I think that's one of the mistakes. You know, I don't want to learn a nursery rhyme. I want to learn a pop song or I want to learn, uh, you know, that bark. And I think she was very clever in, in setting me a goal that I wanted to achieve. Again, she set up your first 20 hours on the instrument really yeah. well. Yeah, like really did. When, when I started playing guitar at 18, my guitar teacher said the first 100 hours will be the worst. So I did them in two weeks. Aha, right. Well, that's interesting because I actually found, you know, I think with any learning process, um, there's a there's a period when there's a fast learning and mm. you see yourself improve very quickly. And then there's the plateau and it's actually overcoming that plateau where somehow you're putting in the hours and you just seem to be stuck in the same place, just um, treading water. And you don't know, you know, why am I not making a breakthrough? And that's sort of a time of, you know, assimilating what you have learned. And I think you know, again, it's important to learn about learning that if you understand that there are these moments of plateau, then you and you realize if you get through them, you'll be able to kick off on a steep ascent of learning. I think if I know if I knew that it would help me through those moments when, OK, I've got a plateau, but that doesn't mean I'm not improving. Who's worked out how to wow. teach maths really well? 
Has anyone worked out how to get enough arithmetic in people's heads, but then move them on to the creativity of maths quick enough that they don't get stuck or they don't suddenly realize, oh, this is so different. It doesn't seem like the same thing anymore. Yeah, well, I think that I was very lucky at school also to do something called the School Mathematics Project, SMP, um, which was a course which tried to expose kids to like big ideas, modern ideas. It was kind of uh, new math. And I think I had a maths teacher who had done a maths degree, so he understood what the ideas were. And But uh, when I read an article for the Times newspaper here in London about how, why I thought this was a breakthrough in maths education and why was it given up, I had a lot of maths teachers write back and say, well, you were very lucky. You had a maths teacher who understood it. Many maths teachers do not have a maths degree. It's, you know, we've got such a shortage of maths teachers. If you've got a maths degree, you see the world's your oyster. You can do anything almost because it's a, you've, you've been taught ways of thinking. And so you'll find maths people with maths degrees all over, you know, in music, in journalism, in politics, um, well, actually not so much in politics because um, that seems to be the um, rubbish <laughs> yeah, bin of um, the uh, intellectual thinking, um, uh, but um, <laughs> in other subjects. So, so I think one of the tragedies is that we've got a lot of, uh, and we need to help teachers who are teaching maths who don't have a maths degree. And maybe that course really was pushing people too hard as teachers. So, um, so I think it is a challenge. But I think you know the the key is uh, getting government off the idea of uh, maths just being about utility, about learning how to fill in your tax forms. And you know that's really not what maths is about. In fact, I tried to persuade government here in the UK um, actually to to develop two maths courses. So a bit like in English, we have English language and English literature. English language is about grammar and spelling and how to write a good letter and things like that. But English literature is about the great works of literature, Shakespeare, romantic poetry, mm. George Orwell. And I felt perhaps we should have two courses. One is a maths language. Yeah, it's the kind of arithmetic, the, the functional things you need. But then have a second course, which is celebrating all the big ideas. And, and so, you know, means more time on the curriculum, but more uh, and a kind of a a recognition that there are these two sides to mathematics. Um, and actually, government got quite excited by that, but it, it never came to fruition. And I think, again, it was the challenge of, yeah, but, you know, teaching teachers to to, to do that second course will require a major um, retraining uh, thing. And we'll actually, you know, we will have to pay teachers for them to that, to be a, you know, a competitive choice in the job market as opposed to, going and working for, for a bank and earning stacks of money. That's so interesting, because I think if I were a math teacher, I would be so inspired by your book as kind of teaching the language to solve huge problems that don't necessarily apply to mathematics, that I would be inspired to pass that on to my my students as well. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as you're talking, like the kinds of shortcuts that we're talking about seems to be solutions, that you say, even the ways of thinking seems to be things that you can talk about for careers and your love life. Even talking about the like plateau element, that seems to apply to so many elements of life. It's not, yeah, it's not even kind of funny. So like it, maybe I don't. I'm not sure that it, that you know we have to have the history of maths necessarily as as good as that would be. Like the book seems to be like a love letter to teachers in in that way. I, I don't. I think that almost. Oh, a lovely description. Yeah, I think. Education. You know, I, I think it was. It is a book which is sort of 
saying, you know, how did I become a mathematician? This is what I was exposed to through my teacher, through my reading, through lectures that I went to uh, as a student. Um, so let me share these ways into the subject for you. And, you know, I've tried, mm. everyone has a different way of getting into a subject. And I think, you know, uh, perhaps in mathematics, we sort of have a rather unimodal modular, modular way of thinking. And so, but why not use music or history? I think history is a great way in to see, you know, yeah, anyway. at some point, nobody understood how to do calculus. So why did they come up with a calculus? It was a, a shortcut for understanding a world in flux, a world where things are changing. You know, a car is accelerating. Its speed is changing all the time. How do you measure speed then? Um, if you use those kind of challenges and then you start to then explain the way we did that, I think you find yourself a way in rather than this kind of backwards way where we just teach calculus and, and then people, why are we learning these rules? And you, you don't give people this, you know, where it all started. So I'm, I'm hoping the book, you know, it uses history, it uses other professions, it, it uses fun things like games, you know, shortcuts to playing games and things like that. So I, I hope it will be a, a great sort of manifesto and, and uh, a way in not just for students and teachers, but I think for, for adults who kind of feel like, yeah, I, I really didn't get it. And I actually, it seems to be, uh, you know, the people in power, the people who are running the companies that are making all the millions, billions, are those who have these mathematical skills. You know, this is a, a data-rich, algorithmic-rich age. Um, you know, it's the numerati, those who understand the way numbers work, that really have the power to transform society, you know, in good ways and also bad ways. And, you know, to being a, being able to be savvy enough to realize I'm being manipulated by this algorithm and the data that I'm feeding it and I need to gain back control. You know, it's only with true understanding that you'll, you'll empower yourself. Very true. And the book has had an amazing reception nearly a year on. And I hope that this inspires some of the listeners who haven't got the chance to read it yet to pick it up. I was then going to pass it over to you, David, if you had any final Yeah, just questions. something I was thinking about, Marcus. Like, as you've been talking, I can't help think about sort of Carol Dweck's work on people either having growth or fixed mindsets. So your comment where you're like, well, okay, if someone else has nutted this out, I'm going to have a go and see if I can get a step further. That is both a little bit of arrogance, but more than anything, it's saying it really doesn't matter if I work on this for six hours and I fail for five hours and 59 minutes. Because as long as in that last minute, I get a breakthrough. So there's an amazing growth mindset in the way you're describing maths. Do we know historically, did mathematicians just quietly work on things on their own and do the miserable bit of getting it you know, not finished for years and then only talk to everyone once the breakthrough happened? Did they hide yeah, what they were we, working we, on? We, we, are, we suffer this terribly, that we, we tend to just write about the successful moment. And, and Gauss, yeah. my mathematical hero who I take on this um, journey, uh, was a prime example of this that uh, you know he wrote a really wonderful fundamental book on number theory and people said it wow it's like the dance of the seven seals i don't know where all of these new layers are coming from and and to, he he responded well an architect doesn't leave the scaffolding up once they've finished their building but i think that's a little bit dishonest because i think you know true learning comes from understanding how the building was put together so you know want to see the scaffolding yeah and actually you know another thing is that yeah, we make it always sometimes look really easy, these moments of inspiration, these flashes. But the, the subject is, I think, 
I get value out of this subject because of those those hours, those five hours, 59 minutes that I put in not solving the problem and the release, you know, uh, having something difficult, which you then are able to solve. Mm. That is much more satisfying than just everything being easy. That's why Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon, this janitor who solves all the maths problems who are up on the blackboard and the maths professors come in the next morning and go, wow, who's done all of these solutions? He finds them too easy. So by the end of the film, he doesn't want to win a Fields medal and become a mathematician. He want, you know, The thing he finds difficult is women. So he goes off and chases his girlfriend, just doesn't understand her. So, you know, I think uh, we need to celebrate challenges and the difficult things in life because those are the most rewarding once you then make the breakthroughs. And, and so, you know, maths is a difficult subject, but it's so the, the adrenaline rush when you actually get it is worth all the harm. But you need a safe to fail environment. You're not like the mountain climbers where they start on obvious little things and they start on a hill, not a mountain. And yeah, they do you, that you very need, deliberately or uh, they die. So you need well, again, safe to know, fail in maths yes. like they need in mountain climbing. In education, I think that we don't celebrate failure enough. Failure is actually a way of learning. Of course, you know, machine learning, this new AI, it only improves its code once it gets something wrong. Um, and I think humans, we work with them. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Marcus de Sotoy. It was a real pleasure. What a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, Marcus. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.